0: And good afternoon, it's 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM, located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is Finding a Voice. Spoken Word Program here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Coming up on the show today, in the first hour from Kate Armstrong's launch of her book, The Stone Frigate. Uh, the Royal Military's First Female Cadet Speaks Out at Novel Idea on September 12th. You'll hear her discuss and read from it. And in the second hour uh, from a July 21st reading in the bookshop in Tamworth in their seasonal series, you'll hear readings by Erica Bayrish alcini and, uh, her re with her recent book, Lady Franklin of Russell square and me with mine an evening absence still waiting for moon. I uh, will be spending a really considerable time in the, at the end of the second hour today, uh, today to share events and calls for submissions to at least, uh, give you an idea a bit of what's going on. And there's so much, uh, and, uh, I won't even get to, actually. So, I should mention as well, as this is only one of about one or two a year uh, pre-records that I do, and uh doing it today because I'm currently at uh, the Kingston Writers Fest. So, I guess I'll just begin with uh, my usual... Uh, Hourly announcement, and that is that occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show uh, may contain strong language, but all is played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So up here in this first hour again, you'll hear from Kate Armstrong's launch of her book, The Stone Frigate, uh, The Royal Military's First Female Cadet Speaks Out. And, uh, and that was held at Novel Idea Bookstore on September 12th. And in it, you're going to hear her discussion and reading from it. And should mention that she was introduced that night, uh, that evening, by Stephen Heighton. So here it is. Billy's
1: oh, Billy's coming okay kate i stand corrected i said readings kicks and never start for like, like 20 minutes after time but it's only 10 after i was freaking out i'm like
2: we have to be on time she was freaking out. i was three
1: minutes till seven i said it's okay it's okay and then i remembered that you this is you know these are your origins you were a military officer for nine years i thought you should not do this to this woman she's getting really anxious so we made it in time um so i'm introducing kate armstrong tonight it's a great pleasure to do so uh, I love the book, um, but I just want to say a couple things about Kate first and about the book before she takes over and uh, reads and speaks about the book. Um, Kate comes to us from Nelson, B.C., where she lives with her husband and uh, their two dogs, right? Yeah. And um, she worked for nine years as a military officer, and she was an electricity trader in Vancouver for some time, very successful at that, lived in Vancouver. Uh, right on the sea and then decided she wanted to change her life so uh, she and her husband sold the condo and the sailboat right and moved to Nelson and started living a simpler life and I I believe that's when she started writing Uh, I met Kate in 2017 uh, the Sage Hill writing experience in Saskatchewan I was leading a a poetry workshop and Kate was there writing, but I think you'd substantially finished The Stone Frigate. So you were there writing, working with Allison Pick. Uh, and Allison Pick uh, w- will have read, you know, basically a finished version of this book. And here's what she said about it. This is a magisterially simple, uh, direct um, uh, blurb, unlike mine, which goes on and on. An astonishing <laughs> memoir, period. I couldn't put it down, period. Allison Pick. Um I felt the same way, but I went on a little longer. Now, my blurb is not here on the back of the book because it arrived... Okay, I almost made a late for Don't the reading. My blurb arrived a few days too <laughs> late to her publisher, so it's on their website, but not on the book. This is what I said about the book. This is the moving, deeply immersive story of a woman's coming of age in 1960s and 1970s Canada and an RMC in the 1980s. Environments that worked in their different ways to flatten the spirits of the independent, the thoughtful, the creative, and the kind. One important takeaway here is that those times and places, distant, we like to think, still represent a relevant paradigm today. Every new cohort of girls still faces intense hazing as they run the gauntlet into womanhood, at which point a new kind of hazing begins. Yet this memoir is no sustained complaint, but rather an act of bearing witness. And Kate Armstrong does so with a rich mixture of humor, drama, empathy, anger, gratitude, and vivid characterization. I love the characterization. All conveyed in beautifully lucid prose. Now, I, I wrote that blurb a while ago, but uh, the other day I, I realized what I really should have said in the blurb. Uh, it's what daryl tremaine said in a review so i went on to goodreads uh and amazon looking, looking for reviews and, I, and I, you know i was hoping you know whenever you you like a book you you, you go to a site like goodreads and you pray that someone noticed the book sometimes you you've read a really good book and you go to goodreads not a single review looks like nobody's buying or reading the book and that's kind of tragic in this case it was a much happier outcome there were a lot of uh reviews all excellent like four or five star reviews of kate's book my favorite was uh, Daryl Tremaine's. It was quite a long review. Um, this is Daryl, and you, went, you entered RMC in 1983, right? In 82. Okay, so um, Daryl knows- First no- moment,
3: Daryl knows where <laughs> if she speaks.
1: Daryl noticed a parallel uh, that's fundamental to the book that I totally missed. It's uh, about a failure of leadership in the institution and in Kate's family. And I just thought, yeah, that's it, that's, that's the crux of the book, that's the axis, Those, that analogy is the axis on which the book works. Uh, the material about her family life is textually um, fairly limited, and yet it's the emotional heart of the book, and it's sort of undergirding all the, all the uh, narrative about RMC and, and making it more powerful than it would be. It would be powerful enough without the family material, but the family material really makes it overwhelmingly powerful. Um, so Daryl, thank you for that insight. I, th- I think you really nailed it and um, I've said enough. I'm going to hand it over to, to Kate Armstrong Hi,
3: I only wrote this book so I could hug Stephen Heighton <laughs> Oh my gosh Okay, first I want to honor everyone that's here. Thank you so much for coming out, because without you, there is no event, and so that, by definition, makes you, like, the most important person in the room. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. So nice to be here. Okay, I have some notes, um, some speaking notes uh, that I'd like to go through, and then I'll do a reading from the book. Um, Before I get started, I just, my book's about equality, and I really believe in the truth and reconciliation process, so I'll start with the territorial acknowledgement uh, for Kingston. I looked it up before I left home. Um, I acknowledge that the land upon which we are gathered today is the traditional territory of the people who have lived here for thousands of years, the Anishinaabe peoples. I hope I said that right. And before I properly thank Stephen, who I adore. For that amazing um, introduction, um, I just want to say that I love this bookstore. <laughs> 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 I'm a like I love bookstores, and I love it that Kingston has an independent bookstore, and I love it that the people in Kingston support this bookstore because uh, independent bookstores are a treasure. And um, and Oscar has been fantastic through this whole process. So thank you, Oscar, for having this store. I
2: don't he's know he's in who his is. office. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and
3: um, I'd like to thank Stephen for the introduction. I did. I met him in 2017, and um, was just I, I was just blown away. I read I read his book, The Nightingale won't let won't let you sleep. I hope I said that right. I feel nervous. Yeah, okay, does. good. <laughs> and because um, I read it and I loved it. And then, I've, and then I went on and, and read other work that, that Stephen has done. But when I met him in 2017, he said, in Saskatchewan, he said, uh, I'm from Kingston, when the book is ready to go, let me, I would love to read it, which is a huge honor for me. And, and he did read it, and he, read, he wrote that beautiful review that, that he said tonight. And okay, so Alison Pick is a mentor of mine. And I I like to think that Stephen Heighton is a mentor of mine, too. He's helped me so much this year. But Allie told me, um, in these kind of situations, just be yourself, because everybody here loves you, and that's why they came out. So I'm going to be myself, and I'll say that... So my first rock concert, when I was 15 years old, was KISS. And it was backed up by Cheap Trick.
2: Uh, and, uh, <laughs>
3: so in rock concert world, right? Like Cheap Trick comes on first, and then then Kiss came on for later for the, the full on concert. In this scenario, like I know I'm Cheap Trick. <laughs> 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 Steven has like a full, like a full amazing. If you haven't read any of his work, you need to read his work. He's like unbelievably gifted writer. Um, and. I just want to say a word about Kingston as well. We came in from Toronto off the highway, like, I don't remember the name now, but it brings you down along the water. And I was like, oh my God, I love it here. I miss Uh it here. And I just just love Kingston. I've always said that the two places I really want to live in Canada were Vancouver first and then Kingston. And then I was in Vancouver, I'm like, I have to get out of Vancouver. (laughs) (laughs) So my husband had lived in Nelson. He always wanted to go back to Nelson. So that's what we ended up doing. But then I'm like, how can I convince him to move to Kingston? (laughs) And I just want to acknowledge also that I saw Daryl today, and we went to Shoppers Drug Mart right when the stabbings were happening. We literally came out, and there was, like, gunshots, and uh, I feel upset still. And the police were all coming, and we didn't know what was going on, and so it's like, just let's get out of here. So if anyone knows anyone who's harmed or, like, and I know that's, like, such a huge harm for a community, so I'm just going to say, like, that's really traumatic, and I want to just acknowledge that that happened today. Like, r- like right there, they're still dealing with the falling out of it. And Rick told me, don't cry, because it makes you look emotionally unstable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he's, like, he's, like, he's not here, he, um, he's going to come another time, he said. <laughs> so, And before I get going, okay, so my, my publisher published my book, and they choose a title. You sign over all the rights, uh, cover, title, everything goes to the publisher. And they chose World um, Military College's first female cadet speaks out because I'm Armstrong and I had the first college member. But I'll tell you right now that there were 32 of us, and 21 of us graduated. And um, without putting you on the spot, would, uh, would you guys stand up? There's a few of the women from my class here. Yeah. totally honor i totally honor you and what we went through together and also there's a bunch of frigateers here tonight too yeah. and, um, it's our 35th reunion when i wrote this book i thought oh my god i'm so sad i'll never go to kingston again my whole life <laughs> um, and that's not the experience the commandant embraced the book and he's totally supported me they've invited me to come back and speak to the women and to do other things at the college and so, um, by him endorsing the book, it gives the signal that you know you should endorse it too. <laughs> 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 yeah,
2: it's, been,
3: it's been fantastic. No of spiders outside. I know, totally. <laughs> <laughs> so there are other and all. Can you guys all the people that graduated from RMC? Can you guys put up your hand? Because there's a lot of guys from my class that are here, and then other years as well. So, yeah. You know, thank you so much for coming. So my speaking notes uh, tonight focus on the concept of storytelling as a catalyst for healing and on what the phrase owning owning my power means to me. But before I dive into the deep end, I really want to say that my book is based on specific content of my unique circumstances. And I speak for myself and only about myself, but in the end I finally wrote my book because I kept hearing my story from all kinds of women in my life. And um, I didn't finally write it because I'm special or unique, but because I came to understand my experience as commonplace and the behaviors as systemic, not just in the military but in in our entire culture. So many bright, successful, hardworking women have told me stories of experiencing the same dynamics and sexual discrimination in their careers and sexual abuse in their lives my experience like including my corporate career after the military has demonstrated to me that it remains culturally unnecessary to treat women as equals and that's the best case scenario the worst case scenario is that the number one crime in the world is violence against women and that's part of my story too writing the stone frigate uh, was my way of taking a sober second look at what I experienced as a young child and what I experienced as a young woman. And to look at the, what I had internalized, the messaging I had internalized about myself. And I was determined to understand how did I get into this situation in the first place? And truly, like, how, did, how do all of us? <laughs> so picking up the metaphor of storytelling, I thought how, about how it applied to me. Actors follow scripts. That include action and dialogue ultimately designed by a writer and all the characters in the story stay consistent with their identities. Am I yelling?
2: No, no. <laughs> it's
3: really loud where I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I feel like yelling out commands now. Wig! <laughs> <laughs> I never got to do that. I wasn't that high up. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, all the characters in the story stay consistent with their identities and their roles in the story and the way that they fit in with the rest of the environment under the guidance of a director. And we have life scripts that we follow for cues as well. Some roles are created by the directors that we were were under in childhood. And then in adolescence, we begin to craft our own identities, taking over the roles of writer, director, and actor. And we craft roles for the people around us, too, And we have an idea of how others should fit into our lives and the unfolding drama of our our wishes and our wants. And in the finding or forging of our roles, we seek answers about identity, how we interact within our setting and our purpose. So in my quest to unpack my experience, I used those three simple questions that form the bedrock of the spiritual quest. One, who am I? Two, who are these others? (laughs) And three, what am I doing here? So who am I? Ever since I was a child, I've had an antagonistic relationship with my feelings. I tried consistently to repress or ignore or force my feelings away. And I protected myself from seeing things that were too painful to see and from feelings that were too overwhelming to feel. Denial got me safely through traumatic situations when I had no other resources for survival. One of the best examples of this is my long-term denial that I was angry, when in fact I was furious. I went through a phase where I was going on to my friends saying, I feel like an angry person. I I feel like an angry person. And after several months, I realized not one of them had said, no, you're not.
2: <laughs> because
3: I think always I hide it. Like, I think I have it wrapped. But it's, um, it comes out, right? Like, things come out of us, they leak out sideways. And so, but I wouldn't give myself permission to acknowledge that, that I felt angry when, in fact, anger was a reasonable and logical response to my circumstances. I played the clown, I sucked it up, I pretended not to mind and I pretended that whatever was going on, that it never happened. There are dominoes with abuse. Abuse causes trauma, and trauma causes shock. And then once I've experienced a trauma, that shocked part of me stays frozen in my amygdala, like the the base of my brain, the fight or flight center, and it causes all kinds of trouble. Because if anything happens that even remotely feels like that thing again, then my uh, defenses will kick in. And one of the things I heard early on that really impacted me was that the only way out of shock is to be witnessed in the trauma or expressed another way to share the secret. And I just digress for a minute, I was in Toronto and I was with um, a woman I'm doing an event in Toronto in October and she has a memoir similar to mine about the film industry and she shared some stuff and I shared some stuff and then I said, wow, I'm kind of surprised I'm telling you this. Like, I don't really know you that well. She goes, don't worry, I won't tell anyone. And we both just burst the gut laughing because we just wrote, wrote, like, tell us. And then we're like, until we get mad at each other. (laughs) (laughs) But secrets that are never told, never go away, they sit in layers under the surface of my life, waiting for me to become ready enough or safe enough or strong enough to deal with them. And in my internal quest for peace, which is really truly what I was seeking, I looked for answers in places like spirituality, counseling, counseling school, my family system, art, the zodiac, staring at the stars, self-help books. And I became a bit of a sports, like an adrenaline junkie sports person. So I would um, fly gliders, whitewater kayak, all the rivers of Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. sail offshore to South Pacific, because when those things are happening, there's no time to like have to think about that other stuff. But eventually <coughs> I came to recognize that I had internal core beliefs that I had adopted that I pre- that presented to me, like in moving through the world, as facts of life about me. Like, I'm a natural leader, I'm funny, I'm not like my mother. Uh, I'm generous, or I'm loud. Like it came up right now. I'm like, I'm being too loud. (laughs) Uh, But those core beliefs all come with like specific actions and dialogues. And I had external messages too that presented themselves as facts of life. I'm Canadian. I'm a daughter. I'm an Aries. I'm a sailor. I'm a binary cisgender heterosexual woman. Those are different, though. They felt different because I chose what bearing they had on my identity. And then I discovered that some of my beliefs um, were opinions, but I treated them as facts. Like, I'm smart, (laughs) (laughs) or I'm confident, or I don't matter. And those opinions color my beliefs and define or redefine my reality. So that means I was, like, constructing my reality. Through my beliefs by how i showed up in the world i wasn't discovering it so if i'm constructing my life it helps to know what building materials i'm using and if i've treated fact and fiction equally as building supplies then i might have a house that will come like crashing down on my head one day so there's a concept that i that i think of as spiritual leapfrogging when you, know, you recognize the thing and then you know what you should be saying, right? Because that demonstrates that you, you're you in a different place than how you used to be. So for me, I'm a woman and I'm strong is symbolic of me being proud of my identity. But if my core belief, my mistaken belief coming out of my childhood system is I'm not worthy, then the reframe will fail me uh, when someone treats me like I don't matter. And I'm saying I skipped that part my (laughs) script my scripts of overcompensation Was one way of trying really really hard or resignation of just giving up they kick in automatically And so when I was living on autopilot my authentic values literally remained a mystery to me I had acted as if people pleased hidden my feelings, and reacted to life for so long and so much that I didn't even know what was mine and what was being adopted from outside of me. And in order to show up differently, I had to look at my narrative about who I am, that was like I had scripted for myself, and I had to ask, is this my own voice answering this question, or am I following someone else's script? Which is a segue into question two. Who are these others? So there's a phenomenon known as being co-opted. When you co-opt someone, according to Oxford Dictionary, it means that you persuade them to help or support you. And just as a corollary, at basic officer training we were taught a definition of leadership was to get convince people to do things they don't want to do and make them think they want to do it <laughs> they actually literally taught us that at basic training so that sounds a lot like being co-opted but in my life i have repeatedly Like, I have repeatedly participated in my own abuse. And one of my classmates at RMC, he told the press at graduation that he was fine with having women at the college so long as we were competent. And that's the game. As women, we're told through words and actions that we're not good enough. And we have to prove that we're competent and that we're smart enough and that we're strong enough. And the bar for achievement is set higher for women. Only within the proviso of not outshining our male peers, so, <laughs> so it becomes a bit of a dance sometimes in life. Um, when when you know, like you want it, when you're trying to succeed and you're trying to do that dance. <coughs> so being extremely confident, one of my gifts and talents is an ability to figure out what is being required of me, and then to do those things. And the more toxic the environment or the more horrific the expectations on me, then the more likely I am to participate in my own abuse. And I did that a lot because I believed that it would help me and that I would achieve my desired outcomes if I could just get it right. But by definition, I abandoned my desired outcomes in my hope of achieving them because I accepted less I became a chameleon, and I lost myself. I finally had to accept that if those people who were being abusive toward me, or had witnessed others being abusive, had any interest in things being any different, then they would already be different. I had failed to see reality that it was never going to happen. For all kinds of complex reasons that only they can provide. And I could finally see that I had spent my adult life going back to those very people who had co-opted me in the first place, Uh, my family, corporations, co-workers, trying to be witnessed by them in my trauma, even though I hadn't known that this is what I was doing. So in a healthy mental state, seeing others as individuals separate from our needs and agendas, is essential (coughs) for contentment. We see boundaries. Some lines we create, and we're mindful of what those lines represent, and some lines are boundaries drawn by others, which we respect. Either way, we don't look at people as things to control or avoid being controlled by or to use or avoid being used by. We get to know ourselves and we identify what we want and need and learn to ask for what we want and need in healthy ways. In dysfunctional systems, shame can be tagged to healthy behaviors such as asking for what we want, saying no, taking up space, talking about feelings, making choices, taking care of ourselves, having fun, being successful, and even feeling good about ourselves. Shame sometimes disguises itself as fear, rage, indifference, or a need to run and hide. So when I was consciously delving into my family system, I discovered two very strong operating uh, messages. Conflict is bad, and someone is wrong, and it's not going to be me. (laughs) (laughs) So as a kid, I made that mean in conflict, even as a victim of abuse, it was my job to be wrong and to say I was sorry. So the belief that I adopted was I don't matter. And as an adult, this stance was so ingrained in me that I didn't even know that that's what I was doing. I played games to be included when deep down inside I felt unworthy. And uh, I wanted to be authentic, but I truly didn't want to risk being rejected. And so one day it hit me that conflict is inevitable when I stand in my values. And this is me like going off on a tangent again. I literally used to think... <laughs> I literally used to think that what I wanted was for us to all hold hands, run through a field of daisies on a sunny day in gauzy dresses with air supply playing in the background. <laughs> I used to think that that was what, that's just somehow we had to get to that, whereas now I've come to accept and see the conflict as a gift because what better, quicker way is there for me to find my edges and to set boundaries? And I had to overcome my childhood messaging and accept that Standing up for my beliefs didn't make me wrong or a bad person. What I want is still okay. I have an inherent right to my beliefs and my choice of values, as does everyone. With my own brother, I had a moment of clarity at nine years old. My action said, I see you, no more. And he ran. He, he's still running. And for nearly 30 years, I believed that my family needed to heal with me in order for me to heal. And that is not true. My persistent chasing of that hope perpetuated decades of re-traumatization, from re-traumatization on me because they simply couldn't witness me in it because they couldn't look to see, like, what was their part in it. And it's, it was a... Um, I call it the alligator death roll.
2: <laughs>
3: Finally, I've come to accept that no matter how hard I try, I can't change others. And I had to learn to unhook from trying to make anyone act or treat me any differently. Here come more women from my class. <laughs> <Yeah!
2: Hi! laughs>
3: So I had to unhook from trying to make anyone treat me any differently. And it was it was a counterintuitive because the way to do it was by refusing to try to change or influence them. And the most threatening thing imaginable to unhealthy people in our lives is when we take back our power and when we change and when we shift the paradigm, when we drop our scripts and when we ad lib out of character. And as women, We've worked hard for generations for everything that we've gained in our lives. We've dealt with so many of our issues, discovered our strengths and our talents, and we're banding together and pushing back more than openly than ever against the extrinsic values of the patriarchal society that aren't working for us. We're not accepting being told who we are when they're wrong. Whoever told us that our gifts and talents are natural, beautiful, loving, I can just see it right in front of me, intelligent, strong selves was wrong. They were wrong. Whoever told us that the way to succeed was to hold back from being our most amazing selves every day to the best of our ability was wrong. Whoever told us that it's not okay to be all that we can be was wrong. And if someone takes issue with us showing up in our power, that's their issue. (laughs) It's not our issue. (laughs) It's our job to notice our abilities, our strengths and take care of ourselves by developing and acting on them. It's our job to notice our pain and weariness and to take care of ourselves. It's our job to notice our deprivation and take steps to give ourselves abundance. We don't have to incorporate pain into our lives. We can stand our ground, or we can go where we're welcome. So the next trick, after figuring out my values and embracing the scary life stance of actually living in them, was finding purpose in life, and that brings us to question three. What am I doing here? (laughs) So as women, we're finally poised. To answer the question, what am I doing here, with a resounding, whatever I want. (laughs) (laughs) We can choose from virtually every career or life path available within humanity. But sadly, we still face challenges of being accepted as equals in traditionally male-dominated careers or life pursuits, or, said another way, uh, culturally non-traditional roles for women. Psychologists suggest that A sense of purpose or self-worth comes from feeling that we add value to a world of meaning. So more than economic or social stature, a purpose enhances our self-esteem. So it's not really a question of what am I doing here. Ultimately, what I do is secondary, but how I do it is primary. Doing the work to uncover and live in my values gave me greater understanding of myself so that I was able to change the scripts that had defined me and defended how I showed up in the world. And an aphorism that I love is that in order to build self-esteem, we need to do esteemable acts. So that line gave me, um, like, something to lean against to make choices for myself, and I became less likely to be co-opted into giving up what I want and I started to live more consciously and less reactively, and my self-esteem grew. And I started to ask myself, what is really worthwhile for this life that I have while I'm on the planet? And the universe unfolds with an invitation to do my best and accept what comes, and take responsibility for my contribution to the world and focus on the difference between intentions and outcomes. When I muster the courage to tackle something head-on, first by accepting the challenge and my own lack of omnipotence, um, I can gain understanding that will help me, even it's, if it's just to eliminate false options. So when I was in my corporate career, after um, being, leaving the military, I was I was successful. I I, I had huge success according to cultural standards. I was making over $200,000 a year. And as women, we're kind of taught talking about money's icky. <laughs> so that's how they can pay us less. Um, so, <laughs> so
2: I always like to talk about
3: it. But you know what? When I was there, I didn't know. And this is like, makes me ill. I was making over two hundred thousand dollars a year, and the guys I worked with that I trained and supported—they were making twice as much as me.
2: Mm.
3: And I found that out afterwards. And I phoned a lawyer who's a friend of mine, and she told me that there's a statute of limitations on, of one year on that kind of stuff. So all I have left at my resources is class action suit. So anyone, no, just <laughs> <laughs> So, and I had a condo in Yale Town, downtown Vancouver. I had a 40-foot yacht. I was like living the life and I was really questioning what is worthwhile. And one day I was working on this deal and trust me, I don't have that stuff anymore so I'm not bragging, okay? (laughs) (laughs) So I gave all that, I gave all that stuff up but I was working on this deal and I, um, as Steven said, I, I was an electricity trader, and I was doing like renewable energy deals with the American, and blah, blah, blah. And anyways, I was working on this deal, it was a hundred million dollars US. And I sit in there and I'm like, this is bad. Like, I don't care about this deal.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Do you know, like here you're doing something like that I always thought I would be like so high working on this deal. But I had just been worn out and worn down, and there's so much stuff going on in my corporate life too. And all my friends were, I have friends who were doing things like um, investment banker, lawyer, and a partner in a law firm, like doing these things. And I've, I'm seeing those ones because they were in these male dominated careers, and they were getting paid half, and they were getting all of it too. And I thought, you know what, if this is what it is, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go do what I want. I wanted to write this book. And so I, I wanted to write this book for a long time, And I realized it was time to go so I went to my accountant because I had an accountant at Deloitte and Touche Mm -hmm. and he took me into the boardroom and he was all sooty
4: and um, (laughs) we sat there and I said
3: I've decided I'm leaving my career and I'm going to be a writer and he's like are you mental (laughs) so he wants to try to talk me off the ledge right so we have a big conversation and he could see that I was serious so then he's like okay well what happens if it all goes sideways and this is before I had met Rick, met my husband, so I was single. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I said, you know what? I sail and I golf. So I'm going to go to British Virgin Islands, and I'm going to work for a sailing company and a golf company, because I can golf for free. I can probably <laughs> live on a hose, like right now, working in a sailing company. And he's like, oh, my God. Okay, and plus being part of myself, I'll tell the truth of what he said. He's like, whoa, your fucking plan B is killing me. <laughs>
2: Okay. why isn't that your plan A? <laughs> and I said, well,
3: because first got to try and write this book. So I went and, and you know, and just so you guys will know, like, this is not, I'm, I'm not um, women against men. I've never been that. I love these guys, and I love so many of the guys I work with, and I believe that we, like, I have allies who want the same for all of us, right? And so... Um, and this is this is proof of that so my ceo left in 2005 while i was sailing i went offshore sailing for a year came back and the woman had been put in as a c ceo and she came she was a cfo and she became ceo and it's a trading it's a trading company right trade floor, a lot of trading so she i think she felt intimidated and she just didn't come down on the trade floor and there were three guys in charge of the trade floor And from the time those guys took over, there were 14 women, we were transactional, by the time they took over, um, they're still there, and uh, when I left, it was me and one other woman, because they fired us, they paid us less, they ran us off the floor, they just had full full range, full scope. They paid themselves a million dollars a year each, and then they paid us, right, so anyways, Remember how you said, this is not a rant? My co-worker is the rant, (laughs) (laughs) so... Anyhow, so um, so I left. And my co-worker, who's still my dear friend, she started to cry when I left. She's like, please don't leave me here alone. I'm like, I gotta go, I'm out. Because I was exactly, like, to the day, uh, you can start drawing your pension at 50, and I was like 50 when I left. And so since then, we, like Stephen already said, in that through that time I met Rick and we got married and we moved to I wanted to move to Kingston but he didn't want to leave his family behind so far so we moved to Nelson BC the grow up of Canada <laughs> and,
2: <laughs> so,
3: you should see my friends in Nelson they're like what like I don't get you because my wrote a book about being in military college like, it's such a different culture there <laughs> Anyways, I swear it must cost a lot of money to work Because I make a quarter, and now you know how much my pension is, I make a quarter of what I used to make as salary, and um, I don't really notice a huge difference in my life. Right? So that's kind of crazy in and of itself. uh, And I'm exponentially happier. So, despite the cultural struggles that we face as women in our quest for true equality, I do, I feel like I've won the birth lottery of privilege by being born a woman in Canada. Mm -hmm. And there's responsibility that comes with privilege. Privilege is not about getting more stuff and moving up the power food chain. It's about getting it right in my life and standing up for others around me to get it right too. And when we stand together and support each other to own our power and want the best for each other, we have a real chance to alter the course of our culture. I wrote this book not because i hate rmc because i believe in rmc and rmc is a leadership institution of canada like you can scratch pretty much any town any corporation you're going to find rmc cadets in there and so that's why i'm so thrilled that the commandant is on board like endorsing my book because i really believe that we can we can make changes i'm not even going to talk about how i recently put all the pieces together of cambridge analytica and all that And there's a thing in track, you know when you run track, and I've been telling people this joke, I'm so far behind, I think I'm ahead. (laughs) Because it's like, I'm here, we can change the world! And meanwhile, it's like, so gone, I don't even know, I don't even understand what's happening out there. I do, but don't ask me, because I'll tell you. (laughs) So my sphere of influence is right here, right now, like in this room, in my immediate life. And if I can't get it right here that every person's equality is a birthright and then start behaving that way, then how am I ever going to get it right out there? How am I ever going to, like, change, change the world? We participate in the system and we can change it, especially if we work together as women and with our allies. Uh, we have the power to change our culture. Women make up 54 percent of the culture. Like, you guys should be terrified. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, we act like we don't, but we do. And um, I'm gonna stop there. So when I was a young woman, (coughs) my friends are laughing, I read and was deeply impacted by the book, Women Who Run With the Wolves Mm -hmm. by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Mm -hmm. And she spoke of female archetypes in story and in mythology. And I'll close with a quote from her work. The real miracle of individuation and reclamation of the wild woman is that we all begin the process before we're ready, before we're strong enough, before we know enough. We begin a dialogue with thoughts and feelings that both tickle and thunder in us. We respond before we know how to speak the language, before we know all the answers, and before we know exactly to whom we're speaking. Mm-hmm. So I'll do a reading. I chose a part of the book. Um, there are two things that you need to know about it. Um, one is circles. That's a lap around the track <laughs> at RMC, <laughs> and that was a thing. I not need to know about
1: that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and the guys, circles? the fourth year used to go me. like this. They could give up five at a, at a time, the maximum, and this is what they would do there's something that will, take four? You know, like you never <laughs> knew what number was going to come up <laughs> for the circles. Anyways, that's a digression. But um, <laughs> so the circles and I think that's it. Um, my publisher forbade me from. Acknowledging anyone who's in the book, if they're anywhere in the room,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> they forbade me. They said people might even say yes and they think they'll want that, but then later they change their mind and it's like, you don't want that. Okay, <laughs> water and then I'll read and then we'll mingle. <laughs> Not in the way that I said in the book if anyone's <laughs> read my book <laughs> mingling
2: with <for> sex <laughs> <laughs> um
3: okay <sighs> that night during our lights out song I stared up at the underside of Meg's mattress slats of wood and sagging wire bed springs held it in place as quietly as I could manage I whispered to Meg What is the purpose of all this? Meg leaned over the side of her bunk, and in the near complete darkness, I couldn't discern her features. To break us, she said softly. To what end? To build us back up again. As what, I asked. Good cadets? Does the process make any sense to you? Not really. Meg tipped back into her bed, and I could no longer see her. What if we do all this and end up becoming someone we don't want to be? I don't want to become some kind of cadet robot, a (laughs) Mm K-dot. A stillness hung in the air. Out on the square, beyond our window, the unnatural quiet was broken every so often by that strange, distant, intermittent hum that continued to mystify me, (laughs) the bridge. Kingston. This is only place where people have them. Meg's whisper cut the silence. It's amazing to me that you still believe you have any choice in the matter. I heard Meg's breathing change. She was asleep. For some reason, I lived in terror of losing myself altogether, though I had no idea who I was in the first place. A sense of superstition grew amongst us that we could help our chances of surviving by observing the rites and rituals and protocols. We keened our rooms and our uniforms. We studied the question of the day. We kept our weapons clean. We paid attention. We swung our arms high. We made our best effort. We didn't volunteer or take any unnecessary chances to try to stand out above our flight mates. We helped each other. The concept of individuality had been quashed in the opening speech and was reiterated several times a day. Do what you're told, and work as a team doing it. Eventually, we mimicked our recruit flight staff way of talking and walking, even when alone with each other. The indoctrination process infested our language, our mannerisms, and our sense of humor, morphing some into unrecognizable versions of their earlier selves. My efforts only got me so far. I didn't have enough hours in my day to get it all done. The hour of circle parade was the time allocated for personal cleaning? I was running eight circles a night. Recruits were not allowed in the halls after lights out except to visit the bathroom. The only loophole. Sleepwalking. <laughs> we were told sleepwalking cadets will not be woken up as this is medically counter-indicated. But sleepwalking cadets will do proper drill in the halls.
2: <laughs>
3: That's when I discovered the Apache alarm clock. Two large glasses of water at bedtime to wake me in the middle of the night. My childhood fear of wetting the bed was my alloy now. My alley ally now. <laughs> Around 3 o'clock every morning, anyone looking into the hall would have seen me slow march, sleepwalking to the ironing room, arms straight out, iron in one hand and uniform in the other, glazed eyes staring ahead. The ironing board was a rock-hard fabric-covered table that took up half the ironing room. It was like a waist-high mattress on huge wooden legs. The padded canvas was stained with watermarks where irons had tipped over and left rust rim blotches. The air was close, with a smell like starched wet wool. I ironed with the light on and the door closed, all the while worried sick about the start of classes and adding homework to this routine. Chapter 7, Academics We went straight to the old gym gym for our textbooks and when we got back, I marched down the hall at specified quick time pace, executed a crisp left turn, and halted in front of Mr. Kendall's door. I knocked three times as instructed. Enter. I opened the door, took one step forward into his room, and snapped to attention. This was my first time in a non-recruit room. The decorative throw pillows and duvet cover, plants, and a collage of photo frames around his desk surprised me. The air carried a faint trace of incense. A khaki-colored poster with the burgundy silhouette headshot of a long-haired guy in a beret with a communist star was the only wall art. <laughs> the guys who know this guy are like busting a guy at the back
2: right now. Um,
3: sorry. <laughs> Mr. Kendall was seated at his desk, flipping through a pile of papers. Excuse me, Mr. Kendall, 14390, Recruit Armstrong, K-A-1 Squadron A-Flight, three-section reporting, I said to his back. Yes, Miss Armstrong, he said, turning halfway in his chair toward me. Mr. Kendall, there's been some kind of mistake. I've been given first-year engineering books, but my degree program is commerce. Everyone here studies engineering in first-year, Miss Armstrong. He switched to non-engineering degree program curricula in second year, he said. I was dumbstruck. I had come prepared for a different answer, feeling resolute that it it was a simple mistake, but now my head swam with anxiety. So you're the first, he said, turning back to shuffle (coughs) the papers on his desk into a stack. I beg your pardon, Mr. Kendall? First, first woman in history to be assigned a Cadet College number at RMC. He looked up at me. "'College numbers are assigned alphabetically. Armstrong, that makes you first. "'Very well, Mr. Kendall,' I said uncertainly. Our eyes locked. "'You say that now,' he replied with a grin. "'Anything else?' My throat clenched into a burning lump. "'Don't cry, don't cry, don't cry.' "'No, Mr. Kendall,' I replied. "'Permission to carry on?' "'Carry on, Miss Armstrong.' I returned, I returned to our room parched and sweating. <coughs> commerce prerequisites in high school, law, economics, statistics. I had only physics 12, chemistry 11, no biology, and poor math preparation. My high school didn't even offer calculus. I went straight for the sink. The tap flowed, glorious cold water. I gulped at the stream. Do you know the guy's piss in the sinks, Meg
2: said, <laughs>
3: as she shelved she her last textbook. I stood straight up and water splashed down my sweaty work dress shirt. Doll told me they're furthest from the men's washroom. He said they just kiss in their sinks. Everyone does it. We don't though, right?
2: (laughs) I looked at her
3: Meg burst out laughing God, no Good, I said, bending over the sink again One night the ironing room door flew open During my sleepwalking session And Holbrook smirked at me from the doorway I jumped back and yelped I love how easy it is to get you, he said I'm usually here earlier, but I nearly slept through He laid his pants out on the other side, on the other half of the table. I noticed my pants were longer than his.
2: (laughs) 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 Unexpectedly...
3: (laughs) These are all inside jokes. Sorry. (laughs) It's a fight we've had about 40 years. (laughs) Unexpectedly, the door flew open again and banged against the wall mr kendall stood there wearing an ankle length caftan covered in a motif of pastel colored peace signs and flowers <laughs> richie and i switched to living dead mannerisms staring straight ahead continuing to iron kendall laughed and closed the door this place is fucking nuts richie whispered. <laughs> no kidding what the hell was he wearing i asked <laughs> have you seen the poster of che guevara in his room <laughs> the guy in the beret the guy in the beret You crack me up, Armstrong Che's only the most famous communist guerrilla fighter ever he fought for Castro and was killed somewhere in Bolivia or something but How the hell would I know that? I'm from Abbotsford <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: yes, it
3: We ironed in silence for a moment How are we going to survive if we keep getting so many circles, I asked Richie was holding a uh, holding a close second to my tally beats me every day. I just keep going, getting as much done as I can. The hole keeps getting deeper, he said. I get them everywhere. Everywhere. Inspection, meals, even on fucking Circle Parade itself, I <laughs> Do you ever regret coming here? Every two minutes.
2: <laughs>
3: I feel sick just thinking about the start of engineering classes. I secured the iron cord around the handle in exact loops with the plug trapped in a specific fashion, held out the hot iron at 90 degrees and slow marched back to the recruit hallway. I slid down the hall, ruminating on the ridiculousness of my situation. My problem was quitting. No matter how insane or hard things got, I had never quit anything. Besides, if I quit, it wasn't just me quitting, it was a woman who couldn't cut it. The translation, women can't cut it. Thank
0: you. And you just heard with an intro by uh, Stephen Heighton, uh, Kate Armstrong's talk and reading from uh, her book, The Stone Frigate, the Royal Military's first female cadet speaks out. And that was held at Novel Idea Bookstore on September 12th. And I should mention that uh, Kate uh, Will Armstrong will be in Kingston the first part of uh, October for a series of, I believe, speaking engagements. Uh, One of them, I want to point out, uh, she will be the presenter of the RMC 2019 Young Memorial Lecture that will be held on October 9th uh, from 7 to 9 p.m. at RMC in Curry Hall of the McKenzie Building. And that is free and it is open to the public. And what I'd like to do is just thank you uh, for tuning into the first hour today. Hope you can stay tuned for the second hour, as I air another uh, reading event. Uh, I do have a number of announcements uh, I need to. I uh, really I'm getting ahead of myself. I just have a few announcements uh, that are recorded that I need to air here. But uh, I want to first mention before I do that. Uh, that you are listening to Finding a Voice here on the CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and here I have to say today, just about every Friday, but uh, essentially every Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. And we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca also want to let you know that both hours of uh, the show each week are saved to my blog space for it after I get home and will remain there for four years at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. Tell you what, uh, let's do this, and I'll catch you probably into that uh, second hour of today's show. So I'll be right back in a few minutes.
4: Listen to Spice Machine every Saturday, 1 p.m. till 2 on CFRC 101.9 FM to hear a delightful mix of dreamy tunes.
0: From contemporary artists to classic gems, we are here to make your weekends bop, groove, and juke.
4: I guess it's going to pack a punch, I guess you could say.
0: Sweet, spicy, and
1: salty. Very spicy.
2: Vai marinheiro vai vai, in, vai buscar a Laurindinha. Vai marinheiro vai vai, in, ela é tua não é minha, sim nosso é. Com toda a certeza o programa Atlântis que transmitimos dos estúdios da Sefarsi no quadrante 101.9 FM, em sistema de cabo 90.9, aos domingos das 18 às 20 horas com a locução de Eduardo Pereira. Vai marinheiro vai vai
5: Ontario Public Interest Research Group Kingston is a grassroots organization made up of members of the Kingston community committed to fighting for social and environmental justice. We combine action, research and education to effect a positive change in our community. From alt Frosch to our People's History Project, OPIRG is dedicated to making our community a more inclusive and equitable place. If you're interested in joining us or learning more about our different initiatives, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Oprah Kingston and stay up to date on future events.
3: Whatever you're going through, we're here for you. We are the Peer Support Center, a confidential and non-judgmental drop-in space where you can come to talk to a fellow peer about anything at all. We have been supporting students at Queen's for at least 10 years now, and it wouldn't be the service we are today without the dedication and care of our amazing
6: volunteers. We also wanted to thank you, Queen's. Thank you for all the students for trusting us over the years with your stories and experiences and allowing us to help support you during your time here at Queen's. University can be a challenge yet rewarding time and we want students to know that we are here for them through the good times the bad and the in-between. Come stop by the peer support center in JDUC room 34. We are open seven days a week from noon to 10 p.m. The Youth Diversion Program is a charitable organization which has offered service to youth in the Kingston area since 1974. The goals of the organization are to allow youth to take responsibility for their behavior to reduce the number of youth involved in the young offender system, to reduce the number of people victimized by youth in our community, and to involve the community in youth corrections. The Youth Diversion Program believes that all members of our community have the responsibility to provide all youth with the opportunity to develop and grow to their fullest potential. They work in partnership with the community to develop quality programs to assist youth to make positive changes in their lives, and at the same time, take responsibility for their actions. further information, call 613-548-4535 or email info at youthdiversion.com. And welcome back
0: to the second hour of the show today. Yeah, and again, you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. Almost here every Friday, as I mentioned at the top of the first hour, I maybe only have to pre-record one or two shows a year, but otherwise I'm here, and today I am uh, at the Kingston Writers' Fest right now as you're listening to this, so... I am not here, but I am here this way, I guess. So, and uh, but usually here. Let's put it that way. Every Friday from four to six p- p.m., and we do stream live online: www.cfrc.ca. Now, in the second hour, uh, from a July twenty-first reading in the bookshop in the Tamworth Seasonal Series, uh, you'll hear readings by Erica Bayrish. Else, with her recent book Lady Franklin of Russell Square and me actually with mine, An Evening Absence Still Waiting for Moon. And mentioned uh, at the top of the first hour, I'm going to mention it again uh, because it's kind of a lead-in that I set this show up earlier this week to air today again because I'm at Kingston Writers Fest and not here live like I am really essentially every other week. And the reason I'm mentioning it here again is because Erica will be one of the featured writers at the five-day festival this year, a workshop I believe she's facilitating tomorrow. And then uh, also definitely a featured in a full author event uh, this Sunday afternoon. So check out uh, King's, Kingston Writers Fest website at www.kingstonwritersfest.ca. And uh, I will be spending a lot of time this afternoon uh, sharing a bunch of events, or as many as I can, and uh, a few calls for submissions or participation also, so I'll be getting to that, uh, that will pretty much fill the, at least a quarter, maybe even a third of the end of the hour today, so I have to do the usual hourly announcement as well, that occasionally some poetry spoken word or music played on this show May contain uh, strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to uh honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece so let's go ahead and go to the july twenty first reading in the bookshop in the Tamworth Seasonal series, and as introduced that day by Robert Wright, owner of the bookshop in Tamworth, here are uh, both readings back to back again. Erica Bearish-Else with her recent book, Lady Franklin of Russell Square, and then me with my uh, book of poetry and Evening Absence, Still Waiting for Moon. Here it is.
5: Thanks for coming today, everyone. Um, our readers today are Erica Bearish-Else and Bruce Kaufman. I'm going to invite uh, Erica to read first um, Erica lives in Kingston, she teaches Victorian literature and culture at the Royal Military College. Uh, she's the author of Lady Franklin of Ruff- Russell Square, um, and this book recently made the shortlist for Fiction Book of the Year for the Book Publishing Association of Alberta. Um, Erica is also the editor of the McGill-Queens publication as affecting the fate of my late, sorry, as affecting the fate of my absent husband. Uh, this is a collection of Lady Franklin letters which chronicle her crucial role in the search for her husband, the lost polar explorer, Sir John Franklin. The book has uh, uh, accompanying contextual notes by, by the editor, um, published by McGill Queens. Uh, please welcome Erica Baruchel.
4: Hello, everybody. Um, it's so wonderful to be here at the Tamworth Bookshop. Um, Bruce was, was with me at my first reading when I launched Lady Franklin of Russell Square, and it's so nice to have him with me again. Um, and we had a brief conversation about uh, who was going to go first. He said, my poems are sort of dark, um, but in this book, uh, lots of people die, so <laughs> there's darkness on in both of them. But I try and... And I'll try and end my reading on a somewhat of a light note, um, because there is my, part of my argument in this book is that there is humor and happiness and delight in the relationship between Lady Franklin and Sir John Franklin, and that's something that really doesn't come through in biographies of either of them. Um, certainly, John Franklin, he's known for his earnestness um, and his drive, um and the fact that he married really interesting women. He's been described as bovine and boring. Um, but I think if, if he were those things, bovine and boring, then the two fascinating women who married him would have walked on by. So part of my project in writing my, uh, the novel was to try and capture the energy that has been missing from biographies of either of them in a relationship that they that was probably interesting and a lot of fun. So I will end on a lighter note. Um, I also, um, Lady Franklin, one of the things that her biographers don't talk about also is any kind of sense of humor in her private life. And um, for someone to be as interesting as she was and to have traveled as far as she did and uh, to have done as much as she did, I think needs some kind of sense of, of humor and uh, a developed sense of the absurd so um, one of and because I was reading with Bruce today um, I decided that I would read some of the poetry that I wrote on her behalf I have an idea that she would write terrible poetry and send them to her husband as part of um, part of their relationship so I just wanted to start with uh, a poem that she wrote for John Um, and the the book is framed as a series of letters that she writes to him as he's gone. So she keeps this uh, a a scrapbook of newspaper articles from the Times that she responds to and then letters about her own life in London as she was stuck there for 10 years waiting for news of him and his return and his safety and then his death. So this is one of the early poems that she writes for him. with an idea that um, she's getting a bit tired of waiting. I'm the wife of a great polar hero who sailed off to find latitude zero. Since I've heard hair no hide, this I cannot abide, and his absence is starting to wear out. Um, so she has moments of lightness while she's waiting for him and getting busy herself in London. Um, but she also, as a woman who is not allowed to be part of the public sphere, she's not allowed to go on expeditions herself, Um, She only has a presence in the conversation because she is the wife of Franklin. Um, She imagines how she can make connections with him. So this letter is set in 1852. They have been gone for seven years. Their food has officially run out, and um, she's left at home wondering what his experience is like. My dearest love, and all of her letters to him throughout their relationship were always... Uh, they always began that way. My dearest love, I have been in Russell Square picking the remains of dried herbs that Mr. Rowe never cut back from last autumn. Rosemary, lavender, some lemon balm, and I'm adding them to my cups of hot water. The ends of the leaves are a little black, but it's nothing that a little hot stock won't soften. I hunt and gather in the wilds of Russell Square and tell myself I'm gathering tripe de roche, the lichen you told me about from your per- your first captaincy. I imagine I am with you there, back in 1820, surviving alongside you. Sophie wonders why I am continually requesting hot water, since she sees my tea chest goes untouched from day to day. I imagine I am slowly wasting away in my easy chair. I wait for the cramps of hunger each afternoon, and then the cramps of the poison to take over as I drink from my cup. And always I succumb to the lure of the tea cake that comes with the hot water a little slice of light sweetness on the side of my saucer that reminds me that I am a woman, that I am in London, and that, awful as the rest of my miserable life might be at the moment, tea time is still the most wonderful time to be English. I remember you confiding that the cramps were so bad from the soup you made in 1820 that it was a blessing that poor Lieutenant Hood was simply shot. I wonder for my easy chair, have you begun to long for the trip de Roche? for the brief respite from slow starvation that it brings before the cramps set in, is it really better than nothing? I long for the feeling of the poison in my gut, to feel what you felt, to have my stomach clutch at the knife's edge, to love the stabbing pain even as it tears me apart. I do not want to know what it is to starve, but I long for this feeling in my stomach because I am so very, very tired of feeling it in my heart. Um, So, sorry, there's some darkness. Um, She was also called, throughout her time, um, searching for her husband, the Penelope of England. And the search for Franklin was called England's Modern Odyssey. Um, But um, I don't think Franklin was Ulysses. Uh, Franklin was Helen. Um, He was the one who was stolen. He was lost. Um, in the Arctic and uh, Lady Franklin was not Penelope she was Menelaus so the jilted husband who started a war that lasted 10 years to get him back Um, and so uh, there's another connection to Ulysses actually Uh, Tennyson who wrote the poem Ulysses was Franklin's nephew by marriage so um, at different points in the, the novel I have her reacting to the idea of her as Penelope, but also the family connection between um, Tennyson and the Franklins. So here she is. This is a later letter from 1855. Um, He has been declared dead, uh, and evidence of cannibalism has been brought back by John Ray. And she has been in London for eight years now, which is the longest she has ever stayed in one place in her whole life. The sails of my own vessel are exhibiting signs of catching a wind. I've waited here for you to the best of my ability for too long already. I fear you wouldn't know me anymore. I've stayed at home waiting for so long. I too want to follow knowledge like that polar star you follow. But I don my black dress and take tea and write letters and move the lace curtain aside to glance out the rain-streaked window that shows me how locked in the bowels of London I truly am. Penelope was mother to a people. I am a bossy, premature widow with a taste for argument. Sophie is patient, neatening the papers at my desk when she notices I've been standing at the window for more than an hour. The chiming of the clock seems to be her cue to transform my space into one of functionality and order, from the chaos of maps, papers, blue books, and cups of tea. She calls it her shake of the head, and it clears my attention for the next round of business, whatever it is. Was ever woman so set upon by worry? Was ever king so betrayed? Was ever explorer so lost? And I turn back into Penelope, don my black dress, and take tea, and write letters, and shuffle the lace curtain back in place, and turn away from the window to begin again." Um, So as the pressure builds for Lady Franklin, um, I found that she needed an outlet, and I did too, uh, because there's so much that's sad and tragic in the story of the search for Sir John Franklin. And the place that I put her was the little park by Bedford Place, which was the house where she grew up, which is Russell Square. And she has um, a lifelong love affair with the park itself and in the novel develops a friendship with the gardener there. So she writes poems to the the garden as well. So this one is for Bruce. (laughs) The modest garden of my youth now lies a blanketed in snow. Yet when I most need truth and ruth, it's my best place to go. Small Russell Square is always there when in my woman's heart I'm low. Beneath my duke I take a chair and let the breezes blow. She spent her life pushing against convention. So to have a place, at least in fiction, where she sits and is passive and lets the universe flow over her, um, I needed that as much as I felt she did in the book. Um, I have one other short section to read, and I wanted to end on a lighter note. And... um, on an example of the easy and very private affection that the Franklins may have enjoyed together as a couple. The idea of, of Sir John being ridiculous, um, allowing himself to be relaxed and have a sense of humor and for Lady Franklin not to always um, be so rigid with dignity um, and righteousness. So this is just an example of the kind of relationship that I imagined that they had but didn't show anybody. We had some peaches delivered this week from the Keebles, our wonderful old friends in Mortimer. They arrived in a crate loaded with clean straw and ice, ice, ice. They were perfectly firm and not a bruise on one of them. Better than any strawberry and so cold. You would think peaches were a polar fruit. Eleanor and I, and even Mary, somehow between engagements, each grabbed one and herded ourselves out into the patchy little back garden in Bedford Place that was never cared for us Uh, never cared for by us when we were growing up where we sat ourselves against the wall crouching in that one triangle of sun that pushes its way between the buildings in the middle of the afternoon. It was hot and breezeless a perfectly still moment and the scent of the peaches pushed the odor of coal and horses shoe blacking and slops out of our heads for a few precious moments and without a thought to the work ahead of us on our cuffs or collars we set to on those peaches bursting them with our teeth ripping the skins like carnivores, letting the juice run down our chins. Oh, that tart sweetness was as painful as a first kiss. I watched Eleanor, she had her eyes closed. Mary and I made faces at each other, the peach juice dribbling out the corners of our mouths. We were working ourselves up to a froth of silent hilarity when Eleanor let escape the most profound sigh, her eyes still closed, and murmured, how I wish Papa were here. Not that you have ever, my love, been a check on my behaviour, and for that I adore you. But Mary and I quickly collected ourselves and attempted to eat the rest of our peaches in dignified silence. We wish he were here too, Eleanor, I consoled her. Mary snorted. Yes, she said, for he would have known how to eat this peach. At that, everything devolved back to its original merriment, and even melancholy Eleanor joined in, and you were right there among us, peach juice on your own chin, and your face the funniest of all. We couldn't save one for you, but we ate the peach that should have been yours with gusto, taking turns telling lovely stories about you as we shared it between us, bite for bite. Your rather sticky Jane. Thank you.
5: Thank you, Erica. That was lovely. Um, this is Erica's novel again. It's from uh, Stonehouse Publishing. It's quite a beautiful production. And our next reader is Bruce Kaufman. Um, uh, Bruce lives in Kingston. Uh, he's a local poet, editor, and uh, organizer of events. His work has appeared in ar- Artist collaborations, anthologies, journals, two chapbooks, and four collections of poetry, most recently An Evening Absence, Still Waiting for Moon. He uh, has also edited eight anthologies, and the latest ins- latest is uh, Inspired Heart fourteen. Teens. Uh, just released. Uh, In addition, he facilitates intuitive writing workshops and organizes a monthly open mic reading series, uh, and he produces and hosts his weekly spoken word radio show, Finding a Voice on CFRC 101.9. Please welcome Bruce.
0: Thank you for the wonderful introduction, Robert. And uh, thank you, Robert and Laurie, for putting this together and arranging it and doing it for a number of us all, all the time. So thank you. I really enjoyed your reading, Erica. And thank all of you for coming out. This looks like a lot of tabs, but my poems are really short. I will be reading almost exclusively from, can you hear me in the back? almost exclusively from the new collection but i have a more recent poem my all-time favorite poet uh passed away in march and uh w.s merwin and it was difficult for me i wrote quite a few things to work my way through it i'm going to share one of those to start uh start this reading and uh it's actually uh after one of his shortest poems, so it's kind of a... And um, his poem was called Elegy, and it's a single-line poem. Uh, the line was, Who Would I Show It To? And the title of my poem is then 4 W. S. Merwin. I don't have a massive poetry library, but still well over 200 books all arranged alphabetically by author, nearly two dozen of them, Merwin. This morning after having learned last night of his death, I rearranged the bookshelf, created an upper space on the top shelf right side and pulled his books from their spot, placed them there added my two books of his prose. And they sit as if shining above all the rest, a memorial of sorts, an elegy. First poem is called Early Morning. Early morning. the day already growing into itself, each second now rolling into and then slipping away. We are already history becoming in this endless cosmic breath. Morning Lake. The still lake this morning is as fluid and as liquid as mirror becomes it. Insulation How to insulate myself from the noise of the day, from the echoing shouts of history, how to distance myself from the pompousness of logic the world never becoming deaf to that noise. Two men sit beside me in their too loud, too long, too proud conversations between the pages of their newspapers, newspapers, only telling them what happened yesterday, while a new morning away from this is spinning outside, already weaving itself in the still color and fullness of what it is becoming. It has lost, lost them. They are lost to it. Tomorrow morning with their papers in hand, they will read about a short remnant of a single small thread of the full blanket of this day. And they will look up from their papers and they will talk about it loudly and long and tell themselves that they know while a new day outside is weaving its new threads into a curtain to protect itself from them. No wonder I can't see. To fully be To be at the same time so completely unfocused and intuitively aware that you catch the most minute shift of light against any single leaf before even its shadow does. The end of day With this heavy coat of routine and obligation discarded and the day at my back, I set and allow this flush of air, this gentle cool breeze of all possibility to brush through. Any breeze welcome, but this breeze this evening ever more so as it arrives, rides through my open windows as I soften to absorb. And here this evening I realized there is something beyond happiness, even joy, higher than ecstasy even, and for it there is no word but this tonight, its definition. This late in autumn analogy for Leonard Cohen. Mr. Cohen, Leonard, there is still motion here on this ascribed last mild day of autumn before tomorrow's winter air approaches. And in this splintering of season, there is now a spirit missing. The color here began to leave the day you left the earth. Three days before we finally heard the news, you left us. And on that third day back, still unaware, I walked alone in a quiet park, watching the leaves as if en mass fall, and in that almost silence I could hear the music of leaves as they willowed against a breeze in their slow dance fall. Their notes and chords barely audible, but your hallelujah filled the air. That day of falling leaves and then almost barren branches opening up, revealing a larger sky allowing perhaps your face to be seen one last time in a fading sun. And the leaves, remembering a gravity greater than we know, loosen their hold to share their color with the earth below. These scattered leaves, multicolored, having already choreographed themselves in their fall, arranged themselves upon the earth in a perfect and patterned tribute to this late autumn day, this year, this day, your last, leaves having laid themselves out in their own language in their last poem for you on this late autumn day on learning how many days or weeks or years decades even does it take for us to learn a single thing A lifetime, perhaps. And that then carried out the last door as we leave. And in that echo and dust of ricocheting and settling after comes then the new life, the ever-next generations arriving in their newer flesh. And they at birth, listening to and then softly whispering back the first few words of an echo heard. Pulse, it is not that staccato heartbeat within as much as it is that steady symphonic metered rhythm of shared heartbeat between. when asked on your road to silence. When asked to write about a glass bowl of fruit on a table, write instead about soil and sky, moisture and root, about mica and heat and form, about diminishing forest, fallen and severed trees. When commanded alternately then to write simply about simply an idea of a glass bowl of fruit on a table, write instead about ambivalence, self-serving manifestation, eco-ignorance, and fragmented truth. When demanded then after to write about the theory of a glass bowl of fruit on a table, write instead about passive and silent observation, about the unfathomable distance between sight or sound and pen or thought or heart, about the endless soft and image-laden utterings in the fullness of silence, and then about the faltering and failing life of words, and the ever and ultimate simplicity and audaciousness of language. Near the end. Near the end, I will remember none of this. And in that time, will ask forgiveness for the forgetting. Even then, not knowing what was lost. But in the enveloping darkness and its wave of infinite silence, realizing, realizing that something surely was. And I just have two poems to conclude. Thank you for listening. Gardens. Again this morning that faint sound you always hear in this place. Elevated just slightly to your right you'll notice again that same small well-tilled garden you see each day on your walk past. You will believe you know it well and you do. The same rows of tulips, the intermittent batches of daisies, chrysanthemums, small ferns and other bushes for which you have no name. The occasional small bunny you've seen quite often but still never enough. The squirrels, the chipmunks, the bees hovering above and that same faint as if musical but haunting sound you always hear as you pass a sound Unique, you cannot describe, and this the only place you've ever heard it, you ever hear it still. In that hidden garden behind, that sound willows from behind and below, and there at the edge of that small and hidden gardens A simple mother robin stands and watches silent as beside her on the ground her dead fledgling sings. Thanks.
5: Thank uh, Bruce and Erica for sharing their work with us today. It was great. Lovely at the end when the songbirds started to contribute in. Um, our next reading will be um, Sunday, August 25th. It will be John Donlin and Miriam Clavier. Um, so that will be uh, two in the afternoon, like usual, and everyone's invited. We have um, refreshments and snacks and we hope everyone will uh, hang around to join us. Thank you.
0: And you just heard the uh, from uh, July 21st reading at the bookshop in Tamworth as part of their seasonal series. And as we were introduced that day by Robert Wright, uh, you heard uh, readings by Erica Barish-Else with her, again, recent book, Lady Franklin of Russell Square, and uh, me with mine. I'll tell you what, uh, let's do this, and I will be right
6: back. The Kingston Community House for Self-Reliance Widely known as 99 York, has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighbourhood in which it is located. On a typical evening, an Autism Caregiver Relief Group will be at 99 York, together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston. Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk,
3: and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and
6: 7.30 Newfoundland.
4: Na, 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 na
6: four directions aboriginal student center located at 146 barry street offers resources and services for aboriginal students at queen's university among its many services the center offers a three sisters feast weekly on wednesdays from 5 to 7 p.m at the center prepared by staff or a guest chef the center is open daily monday to friday and hosts events throughout the year for more information visit queensu.ca fdasc
3: you like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight, where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let The Hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on four to the floor Fridays, only on CFRC 101.9 FM.
0: And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and here, or essentially here, every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, we do stream live as well at www.cfrc.ca. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, there are so many upcoming events uh, that I want to share as many as I can here and even a couple of calls for submissions or participation. So tell you what, let's just start there and we'll see how far I can get. Uh, First uh, call, in fact, I'm going to do a couple of at least one, maybe two calls. Yeah, I think three calls for submissions, actually, or participation. First one is a call for participation, and it is uh, for the qualifier rounds of Queens University CUPSy 2020 team. And if you want to know more about that, uh, go to their Facebook page. It's uh, www.facebook.com slash... uh, Uh, Q C-U-P-S-I slash so that's um, stands for I'm guessing Queens Cups so there you go and it tells more about what that is it's Slam Poetry Competition that's international and held in the U.S. usually Uh, and uh, that will be held in April and they're going to be trying to determine who the team is that uh, Slam Poets that will represent Queens University so Uh, They've already had a practice slam, uh, but there is a slam coming up this evening at 7 p.m. at uh, the Grad Club, which is at 162 Berry Street. There will be another one coming up on Monday at 7 p.m. Both of these will be on the main floor. Uh, So it's uh, the first one tonight, Cupsie Qualifier 1. And uh, again, tonight, September 27th, 7 p.m., also, if you go to the Facebook uh, page, and it's easy to find, and in fact, I gave you the address, uh, you'll see how you can, uh, I don't know if they, they might be set up where you register with them online first, or it may be there that evening. I'm not sure how they're going to run it, unfortunately. I won't be able to be there this evening, but I do plan on making the one Monday night uh, just to check it out, so that's that for that. Uh, so calls for participation for the Cupsie uh, Slam uh, qualifying team. Uh, there is a call for submissions that's ending soon, uh, September 30th. It's uh, Juniper is a publication uh, that would like you to send up to three unpublished poems in a body of an email to the editors at juniperpoetry at gmail.com. Uh, they specifically say no attachments, so they want to paste it pasted to the body of an email. And uh, cover letters should include titles and a short bio, max 75 pages. They do prefer to only publish a poet's work once, no more than once a year. So if you've been published, good for you in the last year. But they're only uh, open for, uh, during the months of January, May, and September for submissions, so it's good. They're not going to open up again until January, so you might want to check it out. We also have one here. It's uh, Radio Theater at CFRC. Uh, They've sent out a call for submissions. uh, We have for original work for the first shortwave theater festival, a week of audio drama to air in November. There are going to be five audio projects will be selected from those submitted. CFRC, uh, we will work with you to develop your play ...into a podcast and radio broadcast. And anyone is encouraged to participate or to submit, I guess I should say. Uh, could You could be a professional theater company, emerging or unpublished writer, mid-career theater artist... ...or a community group or just anybody, really. Uh, why don't you check it out uh, online for full details... And uh, you've got until October 10th to get something to us, www.cfrc.ca slash shortwave, and that will take you right there. And I think I'm going to stop there and uh, move into the events. I mentioned earlier that we're right, pretty much smack dab right in the middle of uh, the five-day Kingston Writers' Fest. And uh, if you if you haven't been there or if you're thinking about going there uh, and just haven't done it yet, you might want to check out their website. Just trying to find you. Here we go. Uh, kind of slipped away from the mic there a little bit. I'm going to amp this up just a bit. Uh See where we are. There it is, Kingston Writers Fest 2019. Uh, they've got an events page, they've also got an author page, uh, and you can get to know more about uh, them, uh, everything at uh, www.kingstonwritersfest.ca. And uh, they do have uh, nearly 70 authors this year appearing in 50 events. Over the course of five days, you can get your tickets through the Grand Theater box office online in person at uh, 218, so 218 Princess Street, or by phone at 613-530-2050. You may be able to buy them on site, too, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, Everything, for the most part, will be held Although there are some off-site events, but it's centered, let's put it that way, in the Holiday Inn uh, by the water. So right at the end, I think it's number two, Princess Street or something like that. But it's the the Holiday Inn right at the very end of Princess Street. Coming up tomorrow, there is... uh, The Hot Charity Hot Chocolate season, Uh, it's the last Saturday afternoon of the month. It's been going on since December 2018, was started by then SAF Decaf, which was Haley Sarfeld and Steph Kielak, and now organized by Haley again and Anthea Fever. Uh, musicians are vetted, uh, vetted I should say, and each event sponsors a different socially responsible charity. This month's charity is Kingston Youth Shelter, and there will be hot chocolate or seasonal beverages. Admission is suggested ten dollars, or pay what you can. This is held at the Community House, 99 New York Street, in Kingston. There is a Facebook page for it. Then coming up. Uh, getting more literary again i guess uh we're uh it is the next in the and the journey continues open mic readings in that monthly series uh, held uh always held the first tuesday of the month so that's coming up uh this coming monday tuesday uh october 1st uh the uh, there will be a barista on hand is held at the Elm cafe Uh, As the doors open, reopen, I should say, again at 6.30 p.m., Uh, readings begin shortly after 7. Again, Tuesday, October 1st, 7 to 9.30 p.m., doors at 6.30, the Elm Cafe, which is located at 303 Montreal Street in Kingston. That is Montreal and Charles Street. If you're closer to... Tweed, uh, They also have a First Tuesday Night of the Month series there called The First Tuesday Muse, and it does meet at the Tweedsmere Tavern for their monthly event. They do have a Facebook page as well. Coming up then on Thursday, October 3rd, uh, Tim Wynn-Jones will read from and launch his latest young adult book called Starlight Claim. And uh, that's always... I think he publishes about a book a year because he's at uh, he's at novel idea quite often with a new book and uh and there seems to be young adult is uh, where he's uh spending most of his uh time writing and uh that's the direction he writes and the genre he writes in and uh it's always a delight uh, to uh Hear him read and talk. And so that's happening Thursday, October 3rd at Novel Idea Bookstore. You should know where that is, but if you don't, it's at 156 Princess Street. I'm trying to see how far I can go here before I have to start doing talking about some other things. So I can still keep going on. I think I skipped over a page here. I'm kind of in tight quarters. There we go. There's another book launch and reading coming up. It's Hugh G., and I think it's uh, called, It's pronounced Lefebvre. Uh, we'll read from and launch his latest book, uh, When You Tango With Death, She Leads. That's happening Monday, October 7th uh, from 7 to 9 p.m. Again, Novel Idea Bookstore. Uh, Novel Idea does also have Facebook Facebook uh, group page, so I would... Uh, Remind you to check that out from time to time because a lot of uh, a lot of events and book launches happen there, and there is one coming up the following night—a triple book launch and reading. Miranda Pearson, Sharon Berg, and Kingston's own Elizabeth Green. Uh, Miranda will be launching and reading from her new collection of poetry called *Rail*, uh, and Sharon Berg from her collection of short fich- fiction *Naming the Shadows*. I believe she just had another book coming out as well, so she may be sharing a bit from that as well. And then also Elizabeth Green uh, from her much-anticipated The Dowager Empress uh, Poems of Adele Wiseman. And uh, that will be Tuesday, October eighth, 7 to 9 p.m. Again, Novel Idea Bookstore. Uh, Maybe I'll just finish out uh, that week. And we'll see. I can come back and do more if I have time. But uh, another book launch and Novel Idea will be Barry K. Gilbert will read from and launch his new book, One of Us, A Biologist's Walk Among Bears. And that's going to be Thursday, October 10th uh, from 7 to 9 p.m. Again, Novel Idea Bookstore. Tell you what, I am going to backtrack because there are some weekly events. Uh, Happening too, so I'm going to try to get through as many of those as I can. The first I'm more familiar with uh, than the others. It's the Limestone Writers Writing Group. Uh, They are a writing group that meets every Wednesday evening from September through April at 7 p.m. They do meet uh, well. They almost meet year-round, but uh, later from April through or September through April, so. They meet from September through April at 7 p.m. in room 239 of the Stauffer Library. Uh, They meet there to critique and support one another's writing. Uh, Everything, pretty much all genres are represented. They do not meet the full month of August. And in the summer, from uh, May through July, everything's the same. They still meet the first Wednesday night of the month, but it's 6 p.m., but what you need to know is it is now September, so it's at 7 p.m., room again, room 239 of the Stauffer Library. So their next meeting in this series will be this coming Wednesday, October 2nd, 7 p.m. If you're interested, contact Dave Pratt at dpratt1939 at hotmail.com. Kingston Frontenac Library is the one that's putting on, I believe, most of these, yeah, looks like it, uh, different weekly groups that have already started. Not one of them is not starting until October 3rd, so it's coming up. Uh, But uh, the first one is called Grown-Up Storytime. That's uh, uh, something that's happening on Mondays from... uh, 11.45 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. And they have here except uh, Thanksgiving Monday. So uh, September 9th through October 21st from 11.45 to 12.30 p.m. It's called Grown-Up Storytime. Kingston Act Public Library is launching a new program September 9th called Grown-Up Storytime in weekly Monday events for several weeks I guess I'm pretty much just repeating myself as I'm reading this. Uh, it's happening at the Sydenham branch, so programming assistant uh, says Margie McKay will read stories, essays, articles, etc aloud. It's only open to adult, uh, open only to adults any age. Uh, please check uh, the link for more information, and that is www.kfpl.ca checking time here let me just see I think I can do this uh, for several weeks uh, on Tuesday evenings beginning this fall and that's gonna run from September so it's already running until November 5th 6:30 uh, 6:30 to 830 p.m.. Uh, the Kingston Front Neck Public Library will make it easier for those who uh, share an interest in genealogy. Uh, the local history librarian, members of the Kingston branch of the Ontario Ancestors uh, Association uh, will be on hand to answer questions and offer assistance. So if you're interested, uh, you know what, I'm just going to give you their website, www. Uh, uh, kfpl.ca and that's the Kingston Frontenac Public Libraries. This one will be held in the central branch. There is another one uh, going to be held in the you know what? It's happening uh, from October 30th through 31st and from 2 to 4 p.m. I believe it's going to be at the north front neck it's going to be at the charbot lake uh branch so and it's going to be held up there that's happening october 30th through 31st but it's going to be a seniors writing workshop series and you need to almost be there for all of them uh so and um guess you don't have to live in that area but it would be easier if you did so and this is the same gene ray baxter offered this a couple of times in different branches here last year so she's doing it up there so again www.kfpl.ca and it's called telling your story so hopefully that's helpful and uh, it's hard to believe but it's getting to be that time uh that i'd like to again thank you for tuning in today. Uh, you have been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Again, we are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, or some facsimile of me will be here. <laughs> and we do stream live online www.cfrc.ca. Hope you can tune in next week. I think I'll be moving into the September 3rd readings in the end. The Journey Continues Monthly Open Mic Reading Series held at the Elm Cafe. And just to remind you that each hour, again, Each week of this show will be uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after the show ends at Finding a Voice on CFRCFM.wordpress.com. We'll remain there four years. Might be a little bit later this evening by the time I get home, but as soon as I get home, I will search for it and do it then. So uh, thank you again very much for tuning in. I do hope you can... uh, Stay tuned to catch two hours of uh, East Coast music in a show called Saltwater Music, hosted by Rob Carnell. Uh, That's coming up right at the top of the hour. And again, thanks so much uh, for tuning in today. Have a great week. Catch you here next week.
4: Tonight, you can learn a little more about classical music and what it's doing today. Listen to Counterpoint, hosted by myself, Selena Cirelli, here on CFRC 101.9, Monday nights at 7.
0: just what the corporate media want you to
6: see but a different picture different understanding a different picture a different understanding not only can you hear it but you can participate in it you can add your own
0: thoughts you know and you can learn something and so on well that's the way uh, well that's the way uh, well that's the way uh, people become uh human you know that's the way you become human participants in a in a social and political system
1: Electronics Kingston, your source for DJ gear and live band gear rentals for Kingston and the surrounding area. Brands such as Pioneer, Techniques, Rain, and so much more. New digital and vintage analog in stock for rental.
6: Full white glove delivery, setup, operate, and loadout services for theater, dance floors, and live music festivals. Q Electronics, lighting, sound, and video. Look us up on Facebook for more.
1: Kingston's Writers' Fest is back once again, and tickets are now on sale. The Kingston's Writers' Festival runs from
2: September 25th to the 29th. This festival is the place to be with more than 60.